Our scripture again is from the first and second chapters of Hebrews. I told you when I preached the second sermon on the first passage of Hebrews, I try not to preach two sermons on every passage of Hebrews, but so far I'm falling short on my promise. This will be our second sermon on this passage. Uh, would you please stand for the reading of the Word of God, Hebrews 1, 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he said, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he said, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning in the heavens of the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your ears will have, your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. And may God add His richest blessing to the reading of this portion of His Holy Word. Will you pray with me, please? Again, our Father, we're thankful for Your Word. We're thankful for Your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would see Him in His majesty and glory, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high that we would hear his voice and that his sheep, hearing the voice of their good shepherd, would know him and follow him and offer our lives to him promptly and sincerely in spite of the inability and sin of the preacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated, please. Jesus, our God and our salvation, part two. Many of you know the story of Alvin C. York. On October the 8th, 1918, he and 17 other soldiers were sent on a mission in the Meuse-Argonne Offensive to take out about 30 German machine gun nests that had the Americans pinned down. When the 17 men were down to 8, York took charge, and he began to work his way up the back of the hill and began to pick off the machine gunners one at a time, sharpshooting with his M1917 infield rifle. At one point, six Germans got 
up from their machine gun nest and charged right at Alvin York down the hill while he was attempting to reload his clip. Seeing he had no time to reload, York drew his pistol and killed all six. By the end of the day, York and his seven men captured and brought in 132 German prisoners back to the line under heavy artillery fire. Of course, you know, Alvin York had attempted to take a conscientious objection when he first had registered for the draft. The wild young man, he had a dramatic uh, conversion and had become a devout member of the Church of Christ in Christian Unist, uh, Union in Fentress County, Tennessee, which was a pacifistic church. But York later reversed his position and willingly served. Alvin York was a great American hero, this a simple, ordinary man from rural Tennessee who was known as having become a sincerely good man and who under the most extreme conditions performed brilliantly and helped win the war. 132 prisoners taken is mighty impressive for seven men. led by York, sent out with bolt-action rifles to take out 30 machine gun nests. 132 prisoners. But what about 185,000? What if they had taken not 132, but 185,000. Just think with me. What if Alvin York, single-handedly with his M1917 infield, bolt action with a five-round clip, killed 185,000 in a single day? Far-fetched. Impossible. You know, there was once an occasion where an entire battle was won by one acting alone. In fact, one killed 185,000 troops single-handedly. One destroyed an entire army by himself. And he did it before rifles or artillery or bombs or nukes were invented. You know, when the first atomic bomb was dropped over Hiroshima in the summer of 1945, about 75,000 people died instantly. That number doubled over time as the radiation took effect. 
But the atomic bomb killed 75,000 on impact. So one, per, one person killed more in a single night than the atomic bomb. Did you know that? Who did it? It wasn't God. Directly, it wasn't God. Let me read you. First Kings chapter 19 and verse 35. You don't have to turn, just listen to it. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. You can read the same thing in Isaiah chapter 37. You see, when the author of Hebrews goes to such great lengths in this passage before us to argue that Jesus is greater than the angels, we need to remember he doesn't think like we do. He's not thinking of a cute figure with a pretty white dress with a little golden satin on the edge on top of a Christmas tree. He's thinking of a powerful warrior capable of taking out hundreds of thousands in a single night. You remember when the angel came to Manoah and his wife, who would be the parents of Samson in about the 13th chapter of Judges. You know Manoah was wrong and he was a bit dense, but he said to his wife, we will surely die for we have seen God. When our Savior was born, the angel of the Lord, you remember, appeared to the shepherds and, and Luke and Linus tell us that the shepherds were sore afraid. Those of you who've been coming to our series through Revelation on Sunday evenings know that John on more than one occasion, I put one on top of the bulletin, John on more than one occasion fell down and worshipped the angel who was revealing the message to him and the angels told him, stop, don't worship me, I'm not God. And yet, John, who knew this? The angel was so glorious, his instinct was to fall down and worship him though he were God himself. And not only are angels powerful and, and glorious, but they're morally perfect. You know, angels are sinless. God made the human race all to be descended from one man, Adam, so the entire human race is sinful through the sin of the first parent. Adam and needs a savior. But we know that angels do not marry. Hence, they do not reproduce. They were all created 
directly the full number of angels. The bad angels, the demons we call them, they're the ones who sin. The good angels are not sinful angels who were saved. They're angels who have never one time sinned. They never fell. They maintained their original righteousness. But holy and powerful and mighty and glorious as they are, the angels pale in comparison to the holiness and power and might and glory of Jesus Christ. And that is what the author of Hebrews has to say to us today. Now let's get to it. First in this passage, let's consider how Jesus is greater than the angels. He lists at least six ways Jesus is greater than the angels drawing uh, from the Old Testament. First, Jesus is the Son of God. Look at verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. That's a quote from Psalm 2-7. Angels in the Old Testament are sometimes called sons of God. Lower case S, sons. But only Jesus is the only begotten Son of God according to His divine person and nature and the enthroned human Son we saw last week bearing the image of God as a man in His human nature. Secondly, He tells us that the angels worship Jesus. Look at verse 6. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 20, uh, 32, 43. And you remember it happened the night our Lord was born. We read there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. But here we read in verse 6 that not only that multitude of the heavenly hosts, but all the angels of God worship Jesus the night He was brought into the world. Thirdly, we see that Jesus is, is greater than the angels because He is God. Look at verse 8. But unto the Son, He, that's God, saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of Thy kingdom. Again, a quote from Psalm 45 and verse 6. Do you see it? The Father calls the Son, O God. When I was a boy, I was mostly raised by my grandparents. I called my grandfather, sir. About everything I said to him, the last word of the sentence was, sir. And I'm going to tell you something. If my granddaddy ever called me, sir, I was fixing to get wore out. But here the father calls the son in the most respectful way. Oh, God. You imagine God the Father Almighty addressing another person as, Oh, God. 
Fourthly, Jesus is, is greater than the angels because he is the anointed one. Look at verse 9. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. A quote from uh, the next verse, Psalm 45 and verse 7. Jesus is the one God has anointed. He alone is the Messiah, the prophet, priest, and king, the anointed mediator whom God sent into the world. An angel could kill 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night and save the nation from destruction. But an angel cannot save one soul from his sin. So Jesus Christ is the only one anointed to be our Messiah. Fifthly, Jesus is greater than the angels because he is the creator and they are creatures. Look at verse 10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of thine hands. Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, quoted there about Jesus. And sixthly, Jesus is greater than the angels because he's a king. Look at verse 13. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? And then on verse 14, he goes on to say that the angels are ministering spirits. Jesus is the king seated at the right hand of God and the angels are the king's servants. A quote from Psalm 110 in verse 1. Now I want to note a quick detail here. Most of these Old Testament quotes, if you go back and read them in the Old Testament, they are referring to the Lord. Generally, capital, L-O-R-D, Lord, the, the name of God, Jehovah. But here the author takes these things that the Old Testament says about the Lord God Almighty and he applies them to Jesus, the Son. And it shows us a couple things. One, it shows us that anyone who says that the Bible does not teach the full divinity of Jesus Christ is profoundly ignorant of the way the New Testament uses the Old Testament. On nearly every page of the New Testament, it takes something the Old Testament says about the Lord God and says it's talking about Jesus. Because Jesus is the Lord. And secondly, that also shows us something very profound about the Old Testament Scripture. The author of Hebrews is telling us that the Old Testament is what we could call Christian Scripture. The author of Hebrews does not say, well, the Old Testament was talking about God and now we can go back and, and read something new into it now that Jesus has come. No, he's telling us the Old Testament was all about Jesus from the very beginning. It was the original meaning of the text of Scripture. It was the original intent of the divine author. God Almighty, the Holy Spirit. 
At least I believe the human author knew he was talking about Jesus too. In every instance. You think about that when you read the Old Testament. It was originally intended to be about Jesus. So you see how Jesus is greater than the angels. And then finally we see why it's so important that Jesus is greater than angels. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He says that there was a message declared by angels in verse 2, and it proved reliable. There's no time to turn, but in the book of Galatians, chapter 3 and verse 19, it says that the law of Moses was given through the mediation of an angel. In other words, God sent the law down to Moses through an angel. Author of Hebrews here tells us in verse 2 that that message declared by angels proved to be reliable and that anyone who disregarded the message from the angels received just retribution. So he says, if there were such devastating consequences to neglecting the law delivered by the angels, what if you neglect the revelation of God through his own son? That's the gospel. God in the gospel of his son makes his eternal counsels known where love in all its glory shines and truth is drawn in fairest lines. Here sinners of a humble frame may taste his grace and learn his name may read in characters of blood the wisdom, power, and grace of God. Friends, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God makes the way of salvation known. He makes it known that He sent the one who is above all, His only begotten Son, into the world to save us from our sins. The perfect Son fulfilled all righteousness that we do not achieve in His life. He satisfied all justice against us for our sins in His death. In His resurrection, He advanced on to glory. In His ascension, He was enthroned at the right hand of God for us. God has revealed every bit of this to you in the gospel. Our author is telling us if someone disregarded the law of Moses revealed by angels, there was a just penalty. Make no mistake about it. 
the author is telling us that if we neglect so great salvation as is revealed and offered to us in Jesus Christ, we will go to hell. How shall we escape? If we neglect so great salvation. But the emphasis here is, is not so much on the on the just penalty if you neglect it. It's on the, the so great salvation. What makes it so great? Is it Jesus, the one who was worshipped by the angels, was made man? And we read that man was made a little lower than the angels. And he just kept on going down all the way to the cross, to our hell, that we might be free. That's what makes the salvation so great. How shall we escape if we neglect it? Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.